so yeah, it sounds a little doom and gloom, but we are talking about how to plan for the worst case scenarios. Um, it is brought to you by the Financial Executive International and Executech. So today's agenda, we're going to cover just four different topics. Uh, the latest cyber threats, so you know what you're looking for out there, what might be going on. Uh, prevention techniques and perhaps products that we can do to prevent these things from being an issue. And then how to prioritize our security efforts. There's a lot of different things we can do. How do we know what to do first, second, and so on? We'll be talking about that. And then some planning and responding we do because it might happen to one of us. I hope it never does. I hope it happens to none of us ever again. But it might, and we want to know what to do in that event. So we'll cover that. Got a lot of slides and about 40 minutes, so I'll burn through these pretty quick. I have an introduction already, so we'll skip this one. Thank you for that. Um, I will say, if you guys have questions afterward, uh, by all means, I'm always available. I love to help organizations and individuals secure themselves against the bad guys out there. So feel free to reach out to me, james at executivetech.com. All right, let's talk about some of the latest cyber threats. This is not a new one. You're all familiar with this one. Credit card theft is a big deal, right? Unfortunately, it's emerged last year as the most common uh, reported type of identity theft out there. Something like almost a half a million credit cards were stolen last year. It's a really big deal. And according to the Nielsen Report, some of, you may, some of you may be familiar with, $165 billion in the next 10 years. So this is a growing industry of bad guys out there who are stealing and reselling credit cards. In fact, one of the big ones, they call these carding sites. These are on the dark web. Uh, this one started up a year ago called Biden Cash. You may have seen this in the news. These are carding sites. So they collect stolen credit card information and they sell it. That's what they do on the dark web. These are obviously are, are not good guys. For their annual, in order to commemorate their one-year mark, they released over 2 million credit cards out there just for free. They said, anybody want these? Here's 2 million credit cards you guys can have. They include things like name, email address, phone numbers, and home addresses, just to kind of lure these other bad guys in to buying their product, which of course is uh, credit card numbers, expiration dates, and CVV codes. That's their actual product that they're selling. Um, and these expirations range from this year all the way up to 2052. So your card might already be stolen, and you may not know it, and they're just sitting on it waiting to sell it to somebody else. Now, distribution of this, as you can see, the darker, the more blue, the darker it is, the more cards that were stolen. Over 80% of them came to the United States alone. So unfortunately, we are the primary target for the attackers out there. All right, ransomware. I'm sure you're all familiar with ransomware. You've heard it, certainly. The, the issue with ransomware these days isn't necessarily ransomware. I mean, it is an issue, don't get me wrong, but it's the data exfiltration part portion of this that's happening. So they're going in, they're attacking your machines, and they're taking proprietary information, intellectual property, uh, copyrighted data, things that you do not want publicly exposed. And then they're ransoming that off. Uh, you may remember the University of Utah had a ransomware attack recently, and they did everything correct. They had the proper backups. They responded correctly. There's, I could not fault them in any way whatsoever, but they ended up paying the ransom anyway. And the reason they did was because the attackers were able to prove that they had student data, private student data that did not want released to the public, so they paid the ransoms that information would not get out there. In fact, these, uh, there's a type of ransomware out there called Black Cat. So these folks, when they don't get paid, they get a little antsy about that, right? They want to get paid. That's how they make their money. So they start selling this information out there for other attackers to buy. If you do not pay them during the ransom, they're going to post it up on the dark web. The other bad guys, other malicious actors out there can then purchase this information from them. Well, they decided to take this to another layer. When this financial company didn't pay them, they spun up a website that looked just like theirs, only instead of the headers being what it was, they started posting all this public information or all this information publicly, all this private information was posted publicly, audits, tax returns, driver's licenses, passports. You could click on this website, drill, drill down. In fact, here's a, here's a section of the audits page that includes birthdays, uh, clients, 
Uh, estimated tax payments. This is information you certainly do not want out there for the public to see. This was available on a website. That's how they try to get these folks to pay. So they're pressuring people to pay the ransom, even if you recover from the ransomware product itself. And ransomware is a big money game, unfortunately. Uh, something like $20 billion in estimated costs in 2021. That was not even last year, that was the year before. The average ransom um, in 2020 was $154,000, and it's going up every year since then. Um, and the real killer for most companies is that they are down for up to 21 days on average. So even if you can recover properly from ransomware, downtime of three weeks plus can really impact any organization, right? Most companies may not be able to survive being down that long. One thing I want you to note is that 70% of those attacks included some kind of phishing information. They were able to email, get some information from people, and leverage it that way. Um, one thing we see is that if you, I don't get too technical, but if you spin up a remote desktop port, so if you open up your, your firewall to the, in, to the internet, within 90 seconds, someone's already attacking it to see if it's penetrable. Uh, we see this in the cloud space. We spin up a cloud server. If we do not secure it immediately, there are already attacks going on to it. It's that fast going on out there. We're plugged into the whole world. There's a whole world, unfortunately, out there trying to steal your data. And unfortunately, we are the targets. Not just we, all of us. <laughs> all right. Nowadays, attackers are also using legitimate sites in order to get around some of the scanners we have in place. So we may have all these great protection tools in place that are looking for sites we do not want people to go to, um, but they're using legitimate sites. Let me show an example of this. So here is a message that says it came from SharePoint and it's a received fact. And if we look at the, the domain, it's adobe.com. So a trusted domain, we would tend to let that through, right? I'm not gonna block anything from adobe.com. Now if you click on go to document, it takes you to an actual SharePoint document. You've received a file. Here's a, here's a snapshot of the file. It's a Microsoft.com site. Unfortunately, this click here to print or preview the document is not a valid link. It's an invalid link. This takes you to a site that looks like, looks like this. It says, hey, you went to SharePoint, enter your email address and password so I can collect that information you need to log in. Now you just came from Microsoft's site, the chances are you're gonna trust this. Unfortunately, the URL, has nothing to do with Microsoft, yet it says OneDrive on it. So the, the uh, attackers, the bad actors we call them, are out there leveraging good, real sites in order to launch attacks against you. Malware ads on Google is another thing, so we're going to see this a lot. They, the, these bad actors are paying to have ads posted in legitimate software that you may need to go to. Here's an example. I don't know if anyone's familiar with OBS software. It's a streaming software gamers use, podcasters use. Here's an example. Someone typed in OBS, and the very first link was an ad for obstreaming.site. That is not the link to OBS streaming. That is a link to some malware, which will affect your computer. In fact, the real link looks like this. I did in my own search, found it. It's obsproject.com. That's the real link. So they're actually paying for ads to be spun up to give you a link to go so you could grab malware. So just be aware that, um, that ads cannot be trusted anymore, on, unfortunately, through Google's search engine. And I suspect others are going to see more of this. Here's another example. Notepad++, anyone's familiar with this? It's like a hyped up version of Notepad. Many of us use. You type in Notepad++, you get all these different search results. None of them actually, this might be the real one. That one's not. Here's one that you might click on, although it says no page. If you're paying attention, you hopefully catch that. But this is again, a malware site, a ransomware site that it's taking you to. And it's a sponsored ad, someone paid for. There's just too many ads and, and Google's having a hard time tracking all these. Back in the day, we were using, attackers were using Word and Excel to get to us, right? There'd be a, a, a macro inside of there. So you, you'd open up the attachment in your email, it's a Word document, 
would fire off a macro that ran some, some malicious software. Well, Office or Microsoft decided to block all those macros from running automatically. So once that stopped, they switched to using OneNote, uh, for those who are familiar with that. And it looks often like something like this, where it's a DHL shipment, you know, you got your invoice and your packing list, whatever. It looks like a OneNote document, it's a doc one file. You click on that, you open it up. Here's kind of an image in the background of what the actual files are. It has this big button over the top of it. It says double click to view. So you double click on that. It takes you to, it actually runs this script, which then takes you to a site which downloads malware. Now, Microsoft's good about this. They will prompt you and say, hey, this is malicious software. This could potentially be malicious software. Unfortunately, most people see these prompts and just go, whatever, click okay. So pay attention to these prompts. They may, they might mean something might save you from getting stuff you do not want out there. Uh, this actually happened at Executech recently. Employment offer scams are a real deal. So uh, someone spun up on LinkedIn, they put up a, an Executech fake site um, and they did a job offer to people. And when those people attended an interview, they felt like it was legitimate, right? Now this company has legitimacy. We had an interview together. Then they sent them an offer letter. Guess what was contained inside the offer letter? The malware. But they'd gone through this whole process. And the only way we knew was because some of these applicants were reaching out to us going, hey, what's going on? How come I didn't get the job? When do I start? Things like this. We started asking these questions. And we looked and we found them. This was the real uh, offer letter. Gary got a copy of. This is from an actual interviewee out there. So beware that they are spinning up fake versions of you and offering people jobs out there. That's how they're getting luring people in. All right, MFA fatigue attacks. Um, so hopefully all of you are using multi-factor authentication. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but you certainly should be if you're not. Uh, a fatigue attack is when on my phone, I get this prompt that says, do you want to log in? I have to hit the yes button. And it just starts going, bling, 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 over and over and over. So this happened at Uber. This is how Uber got penetrated. A developer of theirs, someone, they got to hold their credentials somehow, who knows, went to the wrong site. Maybe they pull up a OneNote. <laughs> their credentials, they tried to log in, and it prompted the developer for their multi-factor authentication on their phone. And they did not hit yes. They were good about it. So the attackers continued to attempt to log in over and over and over and over. For an hour, this poor developer had just this ding, 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 ding going on on his phone, his or her phone. Again, did not click the button. So the attackers tried a different route. They used WhatsApp to reach out to the employee and say, hey, this is your IT department. Uh, if you want this to stop, you're going to have to click approve. So the developer said, okay, and approved. And that's how Uber got agreed. So be aware, if you see a whole bunch of these things happening on your phone or you know, going crazy like that, please don't hit the button. Never say yes to that. Go in and change your password instead. I used to trade cryptocurrency. I woke up one morning to this wall of messages on my phone saying, do you approve this login? And the only thing that stopped those attackers from grabbing all my crypto, grabbing all my crypto was multi-factor authentication. So please, please turn on multi-factor authentication on all your important accounts. If you're dealing with someone, uh, there's a, an account you have or a service provider you have that does not offer multi-factor authentication, I would suggest you consider switching to another one or at least reach out to them and say, this is not acceptable in this day and age. We've got to have some other layer. It's too easy for us. It happened to me, right? I do this for a living. Um, so none of us are immune from losing our credentials. Let's make sure we're protecting ourselves with one more layer to keep the bad guys out. All right, this is a scary one. This was, uh, this was the hatched bank got breached and it affected some 140,000 people. It was from a third party. It wasn't even the bank itself. What we, call, what we call a zero day vulnerability, meaning it happened before anyone knew there was an update or a patch for it. And unfortunately, the really scary part is it was called Fortra. And if it went familiar with Fortra, this is the bank's security software. The security software itself had a vulnerability that the attackers leveraged to get in. 
which means the bank could not have done anything about this. It was their security software that they used to protect themselves that got breached. So because of that, we want to talk about some prevention. There's some basics. Everybody should be running antivirus protection. I think that's pretty standard nowadays. Even at home, please, because a lot of times our home computers are tied or our home accounts are tied to our work accounts or email uh, password resets may come that way. I would encourage you to buy some good antivirus software. There's some great free products out there, but I'm going to say this is one of those layers that you want to get the best you can. So pay for antivirus software, both at home and at work, please. And I really encourage people to download some kind of an anti-ransomware product. Put it on all the critical machines in your environment. Put it on the financial people's um, computers. Put it on your file servers, the executives. Those people should be running some kind of anti-ransomware product because it's typically their files that can be stolen and used against you, right? So if the ransom gets stopped, if they're able to exfiltrate that data, they can do what we saw earlier, leverage that against you. I'm not here to spout any particular product, um, but I really want to encourage everyone to grab some kind of anti-ransomware product, please. All right. Have some kind of a web filtering, please, because we're going to make mistakes. We're humans. We make mistakes. We click on things we shouldn't. If we have some kind of a web filtering involved, it may catch that before we get too far down the road. So the idea is there's companies out there whose job it is to find all the bad stuff on the Internet, collect all those sites and put them in a block list for us. We run this web filtering software and it automatically alerts us if we go somewhere that we should not on accident. I've had this plenty of times where I'm, you know, someone sends me an email, I click on something, I get one of these. Thank you for stopping me from going to that site I should not have gone to. So please, please encourage you to have website filtering of some kind. All right, we'll talk about passwords. This is, right, the best practice for passwords. So it used to be uh, we had to rotate our passwords every 90 days and we had complexity turned off, three out of four, right? Capital, small, punctuation, number. So that's still the case out there, we see this a lot. Uh, however, just know that that's changing. Uh, we had a white hat hacker come in and do a demonstration for us at Executech. And this attacker, this white hat attacker, spun up a server in the cloud with 64 processors. It was just this ridiculously, you know, behemoth server out there. And then did a brute force attack on a password list to show us by example. Five characters or less, it just blinked and it had the answer. Six characters, took a few seconds. Seven characters, it take a few minutes. At eight, it's going to take a few hours, and so on. So it's really become about the length of the password we want to make sure we're doing. And complexity, we're turning off because it's kind of hard to remember J, ampersand, three, you know, exclamation mark, that kind of stuff. People tend to write them down. For those who worked in tech, we find these little post-it notes attached to people's monitors. Or if they're really sneaky, they put them underneath the keyboard. So terrible practice, obviously. We don't want to do that anymore. Um, instead, we want to encourage you to use a passphrase. Let's go to the park on Friday. Nice and long, easy to remember. And we turn off rotation because when we force people to rotate passwords, um, they tend to use a pattern. We'll put a one first, change it to a two. The attackers know this. They're going to look and see, oh, you know, I got a hold of two passwords. I know what's next. So we want to turn off rotation. And, and know this is coming. Uh, we work with a venture capitalist firm. They got approval from FINRA or from the SEC to turn off this password rotation to make it 14 character minimum and use passphrases. So this is coming. There's still a lot of sites out there who are using the old school, but no, this is changing. For multi-factor authentication, as I mentioned, how important that is, please use, whenever possible, an authenticator app. So Microsoft makes one, Google makes one, there's one called Authy out there. Our phones, unfortunately, can be stolen, right? And if someone steals my phone, they probably have access to my multi-factor authentication. Phones can be what's called a SIM card uh, theft, where I call up the phone company, I pretend to be you, I have enough information about you, I convince the phone company to send me a new SIM card. I lost my phone, can you please send me a new SIM card? Phone company sends them a SIM card, they plug it into their phone, your phone stops working, their phone starts working as you, now they're getting all your MFA codes. 
So authenticate your apps, get around that issue. If you really want to take it to the next level, and I will encourage you to do um, these prompts where you have to go into your authenticator and it does a push, we call it a push notification, and it prompts you for a two-digit code. This is what we do at Executech. We're happy to help you folks set it up or have your IT group set it up. Where it's prompting you for a code, this prevents that MFA bombing attack we saw earlier, that MFA fatigue. Okay, still with me? I know I'm talking fast. I had a lot of coffee this morning, sorry. All right, we recommend a password manager. Whenever possible, it's tough to remember all of our passwords, and we want to use a unique one for every site we go to. We really don't want to reuse the same password if possible. Uh, if we're reusing passwords and someone gets a hold of that password, now they have access to all the sites we've been to rather than just one. So please, please use a password manager. Um, there's some free ones out there. They don't sync necessarily between devices, but there's one called uh, KeePass, K-E-E-P-A-S-S, that I recommend for home use. If you, you know, if you want a free product, like I said, it doesn't do the syncing across devices, but you know, whatever you use, just please use some kind of a password manager. And please, you know, it's one key to get all access to all the keys. So make sure you're creating a nice long password. That's tough to get into for that one. Please put a layer of email security in place of some kind. Not only are you blocking phishing messages, spam messages, spam messages alone make it worthwhile, right? If you're a busy employee, it's 40 less messages that day they have to look through that's that are fake. You've saved a lot of time and efficiency for them, and it makes up for it. On top of that, we're, excuse me, we're blocking phishing messages. Someone's trying to get their credentials. And uh, malware, we see a lot of malware being sent over email. We see a lot of these attachments, OneNote attachments, uh, HTML attachments. So email is becoming a really common attack vector. Something like 70% of the attacks <coughs> on the earlier slide are happening through email. We're gathering people's information that way. And they're going after the busy humans. We put a lot of these great layers of security in place, hardware and software products. But unfortunately, humans, we're subject to making error, right? We make human error is a real thing. So let's make sure we're protecting the humans as much as possible, giving them less work to do and checking on that kind of stuff. And I really want to encourage you to do some kind of a security awareness training. So this is where I or someone else does a phishing campaign against your employees or you know, against your staff. The idea is that I get a lot of pushback from companies saying that's very big brother-esque. I don't want someone phishing my employees. But the truth is you'd probably rather have someone who can come back and tell you a report on it and have the bad guys do it and be successful about it. So I really, really want to encourage you folks to please do a phishing campaign. Again, we're trying to educate people. It's not an attempt to catch the person who's doing something wrong. It's an attempt to educate and train people about what to look for, how to pay attention to those things. And we see this big uptick. We do a phishing campaign in an organization, and suddenly we get this bombardment from all the staff saying, is this a legitimate email? Is this a real email? Is this a real email? And we see a big spike in that right afterward. Now, over time, that tends to decrease, right? They get kind of comfortable. They stop asking questions. So at least... Uh, semi-annually or quarterly, I recommend you have these phishing campaigns done. It kind of keeps people on their toes and we want some, I don't know, I call it a healthy level of paranoia. We want to make sure that we're we're looking for that stuff. We're checking URLs. We're making sure that what we're looking at is real. And this really does keep people on their toes. We do this internally as well here. Make sure you're checking links. You're not just clicking on things, you're paying attention. And if you're not sure, you're sending it off to a security or an IT department asking them, is this real? In fact, the FBI recommends that yeah, confirming destinations, the URLs are correct, right? We all can put our mouse over the cursor or put our mouse over the link to see where it actually goes because what it says in the message is not necessarily where it goes. And we want to educate users about where to download programs. So in your organization, if there are tools that people need to do their job, rather than having them go on Google, type in a search, and maybe they click on that sponsored site that's not legitimate, give people a list of where they can get real, real versions. I need a copy of Notepad++. Hey guys, here's a link where you can click on, whether it's in your internet side or maybe an onboarding document you use, where people can go to get the software that they need to do their job. One other FBI warning I saw, 
was use an ad blocker. Because those ads nowadays are not legitimate, we probably should load an ad blocking software of some kind on our browsers. It's interesting, I thought the FBI was actually uh, suggesting we use ad blockers. That was great. And then whenever possible, I recommend this as well. In your email, if you get an email that says, hey, your flight is delayed, or hey, your package is delayed, or you owe Amazon money, whatever it is, rather than going in the browser's search bar and typing Amazon or typing FedEx, go to the address bar itself and type in FedEx.com or Amazon.com. If my plane's delayed, I don't type in Delta in the search and hope I click on the right one. I type in Delta.com and I go right to that site. So you know, make sure you're typing in the actual URL. So we call these FIDO2 devices. These are physical touch keys. Um, the idea is that it's a USB port. I plug, I plug in the USB port and it requires a touch on the device. It's not a fingerprint reader, just a touch. So anyone trying to connect remotely to my device cannot get in because they're not able to reach over and touch that little, little thing. They make a USB-C one, which is super low prof profile, barely sticks out of the laptop. It has a little tiny brass tab on the top you just touch. No fingerprint required. It's a great level of multi-factor authentication. So it requires a physical contact with the machine in order to get logged in. I would look at deploying these in your environment if that's an option. For social media, just real quickly, please check your social media accounts. Uh, I, I was a content provider for a while, so I'm not a great example of this. But whenever possible, set your accounts to private. Another thing you also want to check is try to share work-related information. It's tough to do on LinkedIn because we're all talking about our, our jobs and our positions. Um, be careful about your contact information. We had a bunch of people here at Executech who reached out to me and said, hey, I have these messages supposedly from the CEO asking me to buy some gift cards. I looked at LinkedIn and their phone phone number was available on LinkedIn. By default, I think LinkedIn sends is it your contact information is available by default. So go to LinkedIn and check. Make sure any numbers or contact information you do not want the world to see is off. And there are different settings like it's visible to buy to people I'm connected with. But unless you're checking every single person you're connected with, I recommend just turning it off unless you want people to reach out to you. I get all these spam messages now because my information was out there for a while. And then Google yourself. What's it look like when you go Google yourself? I usually do an example for a short on time where I, where I put my own name in, see what comes up. Maybe there's information out there you don't want people to know and you can go in and talk to that site and say, hey, I want that taken down. And you can make some changes in order for that not to show up on Google. So this is what the attackers are doing. They're profiling you. They're gonna do a Google search for you. So find out ahead of time what's out there. Cloud storage sharing. So box.com, Google Drive, OneDrive, whatever it is, we often share these documents with people outside of our organization. By default, typically those things are set to two things. One is it's set to never expire, meaning it's out there forever. As long as that link is available, someone has access to that file. And number two, it's probably set to edit rights. People have the ability to go in and modify those files. Now you may be sharing it with someone, a, a colleague in a different organization that you work with, and that's fine, but what if their computer gets breached and someone gets a hold of that link? Do you want someone else getting the information? Getting the information? So set an expiration, you know, it needs to be 90 days, fine, but don't make it automatically set the default of infinity and set the permission to view only. There's no reason people should have edit rights in your document unless you're collaborating with them. And then what I do is I create a folder called shared externally. And every file I share externally, I drop in that folder. So periodically I can go in and look at that folder and see what's out there and delete the files that no longer need to be shared with people. So we talked about a lot of different prevention mechanisms. So how do we prioritize this? What's most important? Uh, we see a lot of organizations that do this thing that's maybe easiest or the least expensive, or in some cases, what's most in their face. But there's a better way to prioritize that. And that is through risk. What is the riskiest thing? And let's, let's make sure we're doing our, putting our efforts and our money based on that risk. And we do that through what we call a risk register. We're gonna create a, a matrix showing the things we're worried about. And we're gonna step through it here just a minute. I think I have time for that. Yeah. 
what we're most worried about, and then we can sort by that and start addressing those needs. So here's an example. This is a snapshot I took of the internal Executech risk register. It is not information I'm worried about getting out there. That's why I left it on here. <laughs> but this is an example, right? So we have an impact rating. What would happen? What would be the impact if this event happened? What's the likelihood of that happening? And then based on that, we're going to score a risk factor to that in order for us to be able to prioritize what we're going to do. So you begin to see, so we, we score this. We're going to get an incident response impact rating, rather, from one to five. We get a likelihood rating from one to five. We multiply those two numbers to come up with a risk value. And based on that, then we have a number we can, you know, like here's a 25, right? If they're both highest possible, give it a 25. Now we can sort by <coughs> and we can decide what we're going to do next based on those ratings. And I encourage you to put everything in here, everything you can think of, things you may not consider, right? I mean, I don't know, zombie attacks, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is for you. Uh, pandemics, that's a real thing. I wouldn't have, I would never have put it in, uh, in a risk register before, but it's in there now, I assure you. Attacks, outages, long-term power outages, long-term internet outages. You know, what do we do in those events? Uh, we had one environment where over the weekend, someone came in and stole all the workstations, stole the server, and stole the safe, too. They didn't try to open it. They just took the whole safe with them. That's where all their backups were stored. They lost all their company data, all their customer data. The place no longer in business because they had nothing to go on anymore. So physical theft is a real issue. And the likelihood, unfortunately, of someone having a laptop stolen is pretty high, right? So... And the impact might be minimal at first, but it depends on what's on that laptop. It could be worse. So the idea is, is create, you know, work on this, create a risk value, and then put a strategy together how you're going to deal with each of these so that you're prioritizing your efforts and your money based on what's most likely to happen. And, you know, you're not going to get to everything necessarily, but you're going to work down that list and, and at least attack the things that are most important. All right. Let's talk about some planning in the last few minutes here. So... It's great that we are have, we all have the mindset of let's block the attackers from getting into our system. But I want to change that mindset, and not to get rid of that one, but to instead, let's add the mindset of what do we do when that happens? Because unfortunately, the likelihood is pretty high. Ransomware is, is skyrocketing everywhere we've seen it. Attacks are happening all over the place. So what do we do in the event that occurs? And number one, I want you to create an incident response plan in your organization or work with your team to do so. This is just a plan of what are we going to do when this, if and when this happens? Get all the heads of department, all the department heads involved, IT team, security team, executives, whatever it may be in your organization, get them together and practice it. Hey, let's practice. What happens if we lose the internet for, you know, if the internet goes out for a while? What do we do if we get a breach, right? If someone attacks us, we have ransomware, how are we going to respond to this? The idea is we want to narrow down that time from the time the attack happens until you're doing something about it. And you do not want to be scrambling trying to figure all this out after the attack has started going. So practice it. We'll talk about a little bit more about this, but create the relationships you need ahead of time. Is it legal team? I'll, I'll give you a list here in just a minute. But have those folks ready to go. So you do not want to start looking up who's the good cyber lawyer to reach out to. Or what's my insurance company's contact number? Maybe whoever has a contact is on vacation when that happens. So be prepared ahead of time with some of that information. And then train all of your staff on what to do if they suspect they're being breached. So everybody should know, hey, if Derek, if you suspect there's an attack going on, what do you do? Most people are like, I guess I call my boss. Have everyone trained on what to do, right? Call the IT person, call the CEO, call the security team, whatever it may be in your organization. Train all of your staff on what to do when they suspect a breach so we can close that gap from the time someone suspects something until someone can do something about it. So just some of the context you may need. You're going to need legal counsel. Unfortunately, this day and age, we're going to need, you know, who's your cyber insurance contact? We talked about that. Perhaps you're going to need a forensic investigator, someone who can look into this and figure out what's actually going on. You need to involve the FBI or other law enforcement. 
public relations. This starts impacting customers. Who's going to talk to those customers? Service providers, business partners, and of course, any impacted customers. Have those lists prepared ahead of time. Create those relationships ahead of time so you're not scrambling when the proverbial stuff hits the fan. Here's kind of the idea of the team involved, right? You want to create all these roles and responsibilities ahead of time. Who needs to be notified internally? Who's going to manage internal communications? Who's going to manage external communications? Um, who's going to oversee technical operations? Again, we do not want to be scrambling to figure out who's going to do these things when we're under attack. There are really nine different facets of, it, of an incident response that I want you to consider. Number one, identify, right? We're going to identify the problem. Where is it occurring? Who's happening to? What's the severity of it? Maybe it's something minor. Maybe it's a laptop that got stolen. That's a big deal. Maybe it's an IT provider who's down for a week. That's a big deal. Number two, we want to contain the threat. Um, we want to make sure it's, its impact is limited whenever possible. Uh, we encourage people to go unplug network cables. You know, if a machine is infected, unplug that network cables. Can't go to other machines if possible. We want to preserve evidence. We want, we want to give the FBI and law enforcement the best chance they have of going after those people. In order to do that, we want to preserve evidence whenever possible. It's kind of a technical thing, but we want to try to save that data. Internal communication, who are you going to talk to internally? What are the stakeholders that are involved? Analyze to figure out the root cause, where did it come from, how did it get here, how do we effectively eradicate it, and then start the eradication process. Let's get rid of this thing, eliminate it from our systems. We want to communicate externally, right? What other, do we need to report this? Do we need to send out something to our customers that were impacted, perhaps, or our business partners? Then we want to recover, recover systems and data back to a stable, secure state. And lastly, we want to follow up afterward to say, what do we learn from this? What are we going to do different? How are we going to adjust our plan based on what we learned from this experience? All right. Those are the nine steps to an incident response plan. And that is all I have for today. Any questions? My understanding is that social engineering is pretty prevalent. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, I think you've kind of laid out several answers. I mean... There isn't just one answer that right. solves this problem. I wish there it's were. a multi-what <laughs> do you see as I guess the most effective strategy of combating social engineering? Is it just education? Obviously, that's a part of it. Are there newer strategies around combating that? It seems like that that one's really tough. To that is really tough. We can't we can't just throw on a firewall or do something that prevent that from happening, right? So unfortunately, the best is is education. When educate people, you know, when someone fills out one of those Facebook quizzes and says, what was your first concert? Or, you know, what was your first pet's name? And he's asking you these questions. Someone's collecting that information. Someone's gathering that because they're going to do a profile on you. Maybe it's one of your password reset questions, right? Was What was the first concert I attended? So I've got a cousin, love her to death, but every day she's posting some, hey, Facebook told me I'm this. You know, she's doing these quizzes out there. What she does not realize is that she's creating a huge profile out there for attackers to see. So we really want to educate people on being aware of releasing information that can be leveraged against them. And unfortunately, education is the best tool out there. I, I would say one of the things that I think we fail to do most often is trust our instincts. Too often, after an attack has happened, you start interviewing people. Someone says, I, it didn't, something felt off. It didn't feel right to me. Right? We see, hear a lot of that stuff. So I want to encourage everyone to trust your instincts. If something feels off, it probably is. Maybe your conscious mind isn't aware of something. There's some part of you, some smarter part of us, perhaps, or something more aware that says something is not right here. So pay attention to that and really encourage them to get past the embarrassment phase. And this goes for all of us. We want to make sure if we make a mistake, if I click on something I shouldn't have, I'm going to go own it, right? I'm going to reach out to the security team and say, look, I followed this link. I fell for it. I was a dummy. It shouldn't have happened. I did it anyway because I'm human. I make mistakes. 
So be willing to admit when you admit fault, right? When we do something wrong, it's better to do it early on and catch it than it is to find out a month from now that an attacker has been in the system the whole time and now we're really in trouble. I hear a lot of company employees are using their company email addresses on non-company email sites oh. or on their Facebook or social. Yeah. Bad news? Yeah. In general, you don't want to use anything. You know, keep your personal life and your work life separate whenever possible. All of your organizations should have an internet use policy in place. This is one of those legal things we want to have in place. It tells people what they can and cannot do on the internet based on work. If you have your here's your work profile, then here's what you cannot do. You cannot go post hate sites. You can jump on gun sites, whatever it may be for your organization. But yeah, you do not want to have employees go sign up for their work account and start posting things because that's a reflection on your company, right? Some of that PR could come back to you. So yeah, whenever possible, keep those lives separate. Okay, I think we're over time. So I'm going to stop here. James, very much. This was awesome.